Uh, as I've been alluding to over the last few weeks, we're going to be finishing up our rather lengthy study of the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to be skipping some of it because uh, uh, as, as we've re- it's, it's very apparent to us that the, the letter, that this is a letter that Paul has written and has all the different elements that you would find in, in just a letter that you might write to one of your friends or to a family member and that sort of thing. And a good bit of chapter 16 is consumed with just greetings that Paul has to give to a number of people that he's shared ministry with and people he knows that are in Rome and, uh, and that sort of thing. So we're not going to go through that, that pretty lengthy list of those people because we can make commendation in regard to just about all of these because it's not the only place that some of them are mentioned in Scripture uh, and that sort of thing. But they were all people who contributed to the work of Christ uh, in the church in Rome, and Paul was familiar with them, whether he had met them himself personally or he had gotten word about them from some other person. Uh, so we're going to be jumping to in six, chapter 16, beginning with verse 17, uh, through uh, the end of the book. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you may have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Uh, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Tertius, who wrote this letter, uh, greet you in Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host Uh, to me and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophets, prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to to the uh, command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know how much you've enjoyed Romans, but I have. This is the second time I've preached through Romans. I've read Romans. I don't know how many times I've studied Romans intensely a number of times. Uh, but every time I've done that, I've gone, there's so much here. I really do believe this. We could spend the rest of our life in Romans easily. It is one of the richest and most uh, fulfilling books that you're going to find in, in all of Scripture. And So I'm, my hope is this, is it's not going to be the end of your study of the book. It's not going to be the end of my study of the book of Romans. hope it certainly is not going to be yours either that you will read through this book and study through this book uh, over the years to come. 
Next week we will be moving into the Old Testament, into the book of Job. And we're not, again, we're not going to do the whole, whole uh, book because it would take all of us the rest of our lifetimes probably to do that. Uh, but I'm going to do a series of studies through the book of, of Job. I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and that question is this. Are you concerned about Christian doctrine? Is it important to you that Christians have things right? Or have you the mindset that doctrine does nothing but kind of clutters things up and makes things more difficult? Do you avoid doctrinal conversations like the plague? Do you think that doctrinal conversations really have no place in the church as a whole? That what we need to do basically is just learn to love other believers and wrap our arms around each one another and sing kumbaya, and that's kind of the summation of all of it. Paul wrote this letter for a reason, and one of the reasons was there were doctrinal differences amongst the believers in Rome, and he was trying to set things straight. Everything that he has approached in this, this letter, he has done it willfully, intentionally, because these are issues. These were issues within the boundaries of the Roman church, doctrinal issues. And let me just say to you this, is if you have the idea that doctrine doesn't serve a place in, in the church, then you need to rethink your thinking. Because it certainly was not the mindset of the Apostle Paul. It was certainly not the mindset of any of the apostles. And it certainly was not the mindset of Jesus Christ. That we all need to have a good understanding of solid biblical doctrine. And what I mean by that is we need to understand what really and truly are the essentials of the Christian faith. Paul has outlined those in great detail in this great book, this letter. Sadly, if you looked at the church in general today, you would find a church that is very, and I'm talking about the church in the world as a whole. It's very divided doctrinally. People have all different kinds of ideas and understandings of particular things. And what I would say to you is one of the reasons for that is the church is suffering from malnutrition of the Word of God. People in, in, in more recent ages have really come to the conclusion that as far as the Word of God goes, I don't have that much responsibility that my pastor, he's the one who's supposed to teach me, so what I need to do is just listen to what he says and this, that, and the other, uh, and whatever. But please don't have that mindset. The Bible is manna from heaven given to each one of us. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to contemplate it. We need to feed on it regularly, not just on Sunday morning. You need to do it. And it's something we all have plenty of time to do.
very often bad doctrine comes from poor teaching. In fact, very often unbiblical teaching. It's, it sounds like Bible teaching. It looks like it. It smells like it to the point that most people very often can't realize that it is or it isn't. I know people who believe most of what they believe because their pastor taught it to them. I've had conversations with people, and that's usually the, the justification I get from people when, when I bring up maybe some doctrinal things that they, they may have a different understanding about. Their retort is this, is my preacher preached it, he teaches it, he taught it right out of the Bible, therefore I believe it. I hope very fervently that is not your approach to your relationship with me. Because I'll be honest with you right now, I know this. I know some things, and one of those is my doctrine is not perfect. I have some things that I am misunderstanding. It's true for absolutely everybody. We live in a church age where the church is divided unbelievably by doctrinal differences that's how the world sees the church not as this body of people that are joined together under the lordship of Christ to believe and practice all the same things the world looks upon us as one of the most divided bodies that exists on the planet because we have all these different churches and we have all these different denominations etc 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 they can't even decide what Christianity really is amongst themselves. How can they share it with us? With that said, though, I want to say this. The doctrine is worth being divided over. But the important thing is to come to right doctrine and to be able to tell the difference between what is right doctrine and what is not what are the essentials of the Christian faith? What are the things that you have to include in your description of the Christian faith for it to fully be the Christian faith and not something less? That really very often is what the church is divided over, where you draw that line. What is accepted as being essential and what is not? Some people make more trivial things to be essential. You know, people who, who, who demand that to be baptized, you have to be immersed in water. We say no. Because we have biblical warrant to do that. Not because it's inconvenient to take someone somewhere and duck them underwater. We don't do it because it's not necessary, because it's pretty clear in Scripture. It's not necessary. R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, Paul admonishes the Christians at Rome to notice the troublemakers in the church. They are to watch out for those who sow seeds of dissension 
particularly those who disrupt the body of Christ with false doctrine. Paul does not say to avoid doctrine. He says to avoid those who come into the church teaching false doctrine. And let me just tell you this. The only protection that you have from following after false doctrine is to know your Bible. To know the Word of God. That is your defense. That is the means by which you can smell stinky stuff and at the same time identify things that are real and true in the will and the Word of God by knowing the Word of God. If you are not doing that, you are depending upon other people like me to do it for you. The PCA is a denomination that puts a lot of stock in right doctrine. You need to understand that I'm in the PCA for one reason. And the reason is this. Is I agree very strongly with a vast majority of the doctrinal positions of the PCA. Now there's one or two things I'm, I'm not. But let me tell you, the PCA, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most solid, biblically founded doctrinal churches in the world today. I believe basically under, and understand what the PCA does in regard to what the scriptures teach. There's only one way to come to correct doctrinal understanding of things and that is to ask a question and that question is always this it's never anything else it's always this what do the scriptures teach us about a particular subject or aspect of our faith there is only one place to find solid doctrine and that is in the word of God that everything you understand and everything you believe in regard to your Christian faith must, in fact, to be real and true, must be biblical. And I'll say this, that very often today, things that are very clearly false doctrine are accepted by lots of Christians. We talked about the pre-trib rapture back when we were doing Revelation. I've heard people say this, come out of their mouth. If you don't believe it, then you're not a believer. I don't believe it because I don't find one inkling of a biblical basis for it at all. There are a lot of churches today that are practicing the idea that it's perfectly legitimate for women to fill the pulpit on Sunday morning. There is no biblical basis for that at all. None. None.
Sadly, one of the things and one of the ills that the church is suffering from today is the fact that very often pastors, teaching elders, don't know their own Bible well enough to do it to convey rightful doctrine to their people. It's very easy to, to, to demonstrate in Scripture that, that putting a woman in the pulpit is not the will and desire of God. There are people going to hear sermons this morning that tell them, if you do not speak in tongues and you're not really a believer, you're kidding yourself. I'm telling you guys, these things are very easily shown to be struck down in Scripture, but people believe it. Why do they believe it? Because their pastor preaches it. And they don't know the Word of God enough to discern between what is true and what is not true. And their people follow them willingly and blindly. We all need to be like the Bereans. Berea. Paul visited there. And he preached. And what did the Jews do who were there? They examined the scriptures to determine if what Paul said was true. And when they discerned that it was, they believed it. They accepted it. They just didn't receive whatever Paul said as the gospel. They tested his teaching. We all have to do that. We all have to test every teaching that we hear from anybody. We have to weigh it in the balance of Scripture. And if it's Scripture, we need to accept it and receive it as God's Word. But if it's not, then we need to reject it. But again, I wish there was some replacement. I wish there was some easy way of doing this. But there's not. The only way you can protect yourself in this sea of disinformation that exists out there in a secular sense there's also this sea is disinformation that's available out there in the name of the church the only protection you have from it ultimately is your own knowledge and understanding of God's word otherwise you're dependent upon other people to do that for you And very often you will find a lot of people that are very willing to do that for you. There are actually people in pulpits, I believe, that don't want their people to know the Bible. They want people they can tell what they want to tell that just go right along with it, never questioning, never wondering, never objecting, etc., etc. They just want a bunch of sheep. They want to be the shepherd by guys. They are the shepherd, and they just want a bunch of sheep. They're just going to follow them wherever they want to take them. And sometimes people are lazy. And sometimes people are willing to let that happen. He makes a reference here to those who are naive. I don't know about you, but I don't like that word. 
Would you like for someone to call you naive? Naive. Simple-minded. In the context here, he's talking about people who do not know their word, who do not know the Bible, who are the mercy of other people, because they don't. Don't be naive. Learn the word. Study it. Read it. Devour it. Nonetheless, Paul rejoices in the commitment these people have. I mean, he wouldn't be saying this to these folks if he didn't understand that there were false doctrines going around in the Roman church. And obviously, one of the main reasons he wrote this letter was to help to correct misunderstandings. Paul was encouraged by the Roman church. Remember all the way back in, in chapter 1, he commended them because their faith was known in all of the world. They were noted as being these, these, these Christians of very great faith. And part of that certainly had to do with the fact that they were undergoing persecution. Severe persecution that was going to ramp up, by the way. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. But Paul's reasons for writing this letter were numerous, and one of those certainly was to correct doctrinal misunderstandings about things that he considered to be essential. And at the same time, he wanted to be an encouragement to those that he was writing to. And ultimately, what he's doing is encouraging them to continue to serve the Lord no matter where it leads them and no matter the consequences they suffer as a result of it. And some of them will suffer greatly. As a matter of fact, the persecution in Rome is only starting, it's going to get worse, it's going to get a lot worse. And it's not going to be short-lived. It's going to go on for a long time, for decades. Peter and Paul both will be martyred in Rome around 64, 65 A.D. After many, many years of ministry, after many, many years of persecution themselves, they will suffer the ultimate persecution. Death. You think Satan was part of the picture in Rome? Quite likely.
He brings Satan up in verse 20. That God will crush Satan under your feet. Reality is this is when persecution arises, certainly the devil's finger is in it somewhere. But you and I can have every confidence that he will be crushed. Jesus will crush him. He's already restrained him. He's already limited him. The only power that he has is the power that God allows him to have. Not for Satan's benefit, but for God's own reasons and purposes, which are a mystery to us. We were talking about this in our study of First Peter this morning. Where Peter makes acknowledgement of Satan as this roaring lion who's looking for someone to devour. Uh, Satan is a powerful being compared to you and I. He's a creation of God. God's allowed him at the very least to be. He is no threat to him. He's never been a threat to God. He's never been a threat to Christ. He somehow has deceived himself into believing that he really is. He ultimately is no threat to you and to me. But he is always looking for a willing ear to listen to his lies. See, this is another reason why we need to be immersed in the Word of God, because we need to be studying His truth and not listening to the lies of the evil one. How did Jesus defend Himself when He was confronted with Satan or by Satan in the wilderness? By Scripture. What is our defense against Satan? Scripture. Apart from Christ, we would be putty in his hands. But we have Christ. So don't... Well, do give Satan his due. And he's due. You know what he's due? Nothing. Certainly not your ear. Certainly not you. Paul never would have mentioned that if he didn't know that Satan had his finger to some degree in the goings-on in the Roman church. That's why he mentions this specifically. So turn an eye ear, a deaf ear to the lies of the evil one. And let me tell you, very often they're very appealing to the sinful nature within us.
Paul has many greetings here. He, know, he knows of some of these people personally. He knows of others indirectly. Can you imagine what it would be like to have your name mentioned in Scripture? To be Tertius? The guy that Paul dictated the book of Romans to, and the only thing he did was write down what Paul did, but now his name is here in Scripture, and it's going to be in Scripture forever. You find this at the end of all of Paul's letters to some degree, not in quite the intensity or the measure that you do here, but his mention of other people for a lot of reasons. And one of those is I think that he's, he's making everyone aware that he understands that he's not in ministry by himself. He's in ministry with lots of other people. They are joined together in the work of the gospel. He mentions a fellow, you know, he mentions some of the folks that have worked with him closely, Timothy and Sylvanus and some other folks. Uh, he mentions Gaius. You know, our understanding is that when Paul was writing this letter, he was actually in Corinth. Gaius was a prominent citizen of Corinth. He was also a prominent uh, person in the church in Corinth. There, he was a wealthy person, evidently, a very good possibility that the church in Corinth was meeting in his house. He also greets, uh, greets them through a guy named Erastus, who was the city treasurer in Corinth. And I just want to challenge us with this idea this, this morning that sometimes we think that some people are unreachable with the gospel where they are. But we need to understand something, that God is able to reach anybody and everybody. Uh, we need to be in prayer, fervent prayer, in regard to this election coming up because we understand this, that this is probably one of the most critical elections in any of our lifetimes. It could completely redefine the United States as it is. We all understand that. But what we need to be praying is the conversion of people. Because Christ is the only thing that ever ultimately makes a difference for anybody. Christ can convert anybody. Look at you. Look at me. Commend ourselves to him as the best that we can possibly do. Paul ends his book with a doxology. Or a blessing. I mean, we're all familiar with what we call the doxology. It's an example of a doxology that's not found in the Bible anywhere, by the way. It's just kind of a summation of some of the teaching of the Bible. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now listen to that. That sounds kind of arrogant. Paul's saying the gospel's mine. Can you imagine making that statement? Sounds awful arrogant. I hope you never, I hope those words never come out of your mouth. <laughs> Certainly hope they never come out of my mouth. The gospel is God's. The gospel is Christ's. It's their invention. They believe that they, they've made it reality. So why would Paul use that? it's because of this it's because he understands that the gospel he's presented to them in this book of Romans is not exactly the same gospel that they've heard from others in other words Paul owns this this is Paul's understanding of all of these things of God. We need to be careful not to develop the mentality that we have our own gospel. There's only one. We're not apostles. I hope you never hear me say the words, my gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, I think the reason Paul does this, and I mean, he's really stepping out on a limb here. What he's encouraging them to do is to follow the teaching that he has presented to them, regardless of the teaching they've received from others. Because this, this is the true gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ himself has given to Paul. It's not ultimately Paul's gospel. It's Jesus' apostle of gospel. He alludes here to some of the things that he has before through the book, and that is he talks about the revelation, the mystery that was kept secret for, for long ages. And what would that mystery be? Well, it would basically probably be the gospel itself. I mean, we've seen over and over again through the book that Paul really emphasizes this, that there are some Jews who were saved, but not all Jews are saved. And oh, by the way, it's also been God's intention all along, not only to save some of the Jews, but also to save some of the Gentiles. may not realize it, but there were many false gospels that abounded in the first and second century. Jesus appointed the apostles for a particular purpose, and that was to carry the word 
to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. How did they do that? They did that by going very often, but they also did it by writing Scripture. So how is it that you and I are able to discern between a false gospel and the real, true gospel? See, the words of the apostles, like Paul and Peter and John. See, they are still helping us. They've been dead now for a very long time, but they still are helping you and I come to a rightful understanding and practice of every aspect of our Christian faith. The church is greatly divided today over doctrine. And let me just tell you this. The main reason it is is because there's, because false doctrine is as common as you can possibly imagine in the church today. It just flat really is. People believe all kinds of things that are very easily shown not to be true in Scripture. But they believe them with all of their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And sometimes those are leaders. but they don't have the Bible to back them up. There are churches today where people will be told this, that if you do not speak in tongues, and you might think you're a believer, but you're really not, by a pastor, they will be told that. So what do you think people are going to do? They're going to contend to convince themselves that they actually do speak in tongues. They're going to start jibber-jabbering, all kinds of stuff that doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense to them. It's nonsense because it is nonsense. Anybody that knows the book of 1 Corinthians can strike that doctrine down in a heartbeat. It is unbiblical. But people say it, people believe it, and people propagate it. Richard Pratt, he was one of my mentors in seminary that I got closer to than I did most of my other seminary professors. He's had dinner at our house a couple of times over the years and spent a night with us here, there, and yonder, and, and whatever. But I got to know him a lot more. But he, he's, he's a reformed as you can get, but you know what? He was converted in a charismatic church. Where he was told, and he said, I did the tongue speaking, you know, for a while, because I was told over and over again that I had to, that if I didn't do it, then I wasn't really a believer. So what am I going to do? I'm going to start doing something. But then he started studying the Word of God himself, and he found out that that's heresy. That's, that's false doctrine. It's wrong. And he left his charismatic roots behind. There are so many people in the church today as far as 
my eye can discern, have really lost the jest, the heart, and the soul of the very gospel itself. There are people out there, and there are pastors out there that are going to teach this today, that even though you're fallen in sin, you still, of your own free will, without God doing anything to you at all, are able to choose Jesus Christ. It's totally up to you. Show me. Show me where that is. Understand where false doctrine comes from? It comes from very often when the Bible's saying things people don't like. And so they let their human understanding enter into the picture and let their sinful nature determine for them in part why they understand what they understand. You understand, this is why we need the Word of God like it is, not corrupted, not polluted, not twisted, not bent, to take it at its, what it says. And again, I just want to reiterate this, and this is Paul, and this is you need to know the Word of God. This is your protection from people like me. Do it. Don't talk about it. Don't feel guilty because you haven't done it. Pick up your Bible and read it and study it. And if you don't do that, you're depending upon other people to do it for you. Be a Berean. Seriously. What you ought to be doing after you leave here this morning is opening your Bible up and measuring what I've said to you in the balance of Scripture. And if it passes the test, accept it. And if it doesn't, you should throw it back in my face. Commit yourself to it. Absolutely. Completely. It is safe ground. And it's the only ground that is safe. The gospel, not of Paul. The gospel of Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.